The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world, and it's now a leading supplier across the Americas with more than three gigawatts shipped in the last two years. Later in the show, you're going to hear a story about one of the people who's responsible for shipping out those inverters. And there's a lot of complexity. And when you got that much volume going out, you need to have the best people who are taking care of those logistics. To find out more about SunGrow's inverters for battery systems and for solar systems, go to sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor for GTM. Welcome to the show. Truck buyers are historically some of the most brand-loyal auto consumers. But a recent survey suggests that loyalty is loosening a bit. Into the picture steps Elon Musk, who dropped the Tesla Cybertruck earlier this month. This space-age pickup truck concept is truly uh, putting the shift in consumer preferences to the test. It's also tearing a lot of opinionated people apart. So in this episode, what is the Cybertruck and where might it fit into the emerging electric truck market? Then some policy action aside from impeachment hearings and the presidential election. There's a major tax bill in Congress right now that would be a boon to renewables. What are its chances? And finally, what would we do with a million dollars? We answer a listener question. In Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions. Catherine, what, is a, what does the chair do? What is that <laughs> title exactly? It uh, it's for sitting on. Uh, the chair just you know we I help guide the mission um, of the company in very close partnership with our managing partner Isaac Brown. We're co-owners and we work very closely together on making sure that we are aligned with the mission of what we want to do and what we want to get done and how we want to impact the future. Should we all be co-chairs of this podcast instead of co-hosts? I think we have to be co-chairs. co-chairs. I would call <laughs> Catherine the beating heart of 38 North. I feel like I'm the bleeding heart, and my partner <laughs> Isaac is the beating heart, actually. <laughs> Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, does the title president, does that come with any special perks when you're in the airport or at the grocery store? No, it's largely ceremonial, right? Like the free lounge you get with your, your credit card is always the presidential lounge. Right. That's the that that's my title. I heard you cannot be indicted. (laughs) (laughs) It comes it comes with a couple of get out of jail free cards. (laughs) By now, most people have probably seen the Tesla Cybertruck. If you haven't, just go ahead and Google it. It'll make this conversation a whole lot clearer. It's a truck that looks like it came out of an 8-bit video game or a retro future illustration from the 70s. The design caused a lot of strong opinions for and against. Uh, Elon didn't have the best reveal of the Cybertruck earlier this month, just before Thanksgiving. After driving it on stage through flames and talking about how tough it is, he asked his design chief to throw a metal ball at the window to prove its unbreakability, and it smashed the window not once but twice. Here's a piece of tape from that moment. Franz, could you try to break this glass, please? Oh, my fucking God. Well... Maybe that was a little too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Should we try it in the rear? <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. It didn't go through. Let's so that's a, that's a plus side. Let's try the rear. Right. Try that one, really? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Oh, man. It didn't go through. <laughs> Watching this video, 
oh, it's so embarrassing. I cringe thinking about being up there on stage at that moment. You can see it in Musk's face. Uh, Definitely not planned. Foibles aside, Tesla's truck reveal has caused much debate over its place in the booming light-duty truck market, a market that will soon have a lot more electric models. So let's talk about what the Cybertruck means for the electric truck market generally. First, to the Tesla reveal, uh, Jigger, first reactions. Well, I mean, I'm not going to buy one, but <laughs> I, th- I think it went really well. What? Right? I mean, I think that, that literally everyone is talking about it. Everyone has a strong opinion on it. Everyone wants to, you know, make sure that their two cents are deposited in his piggy bank. And so in general, I think he had a phenomenal, phenomenon launch. And like, I just think he'll like, he's laughing all the way to the bank. Catherine, what was your reaction to the truck itself? So just a huge caveat for everybody listening. I'm not a car person. So like, I'm not the kind of person whose heart beats faster when I see anything like the Roadster or anything like that, just because I spent a lot of time on buses. And, you know, we have like a very kind of just regular old hybrid vehicle that we use to get around. So like, I looked at it and said, Oh, that looks like a Hummer or something. It looks like an armored vehicle. But oops, it's not really an armored vehicle. (laughs) Because you can break it really easily. Um, And I just did not like the design. Because I, you know, but that's a personal opinion. I think that's totally aesthetic taste. I think I've heard from a lot of people who did, but I don't think that's even really the point. I think, as Jigger said, the point was for him to get out there, get some publicity, and kind of get people jazzed because he wants to be on the edge of all of this. And and that's good. That's good for everything else in the industry if he's out there on the edge and puts out things that are just wild and different and interesting that gets people thinking about it and talking about it and saying, oh, well, maybe when I get my F-150 electric truck, you know, that'll be maybe just as cool. Let me just read to you from what Piper Jaffrey said. They said, and the more we looked, the more we began considering the possibility that all other pickup trucks might actually be pretty crummy. And the Tesla Cybertruck is the only pickup worth ordering. Or at the very least, it no longer seemed far-fetched that Tesla might sell 200,000 plus units per per year in the United States. Like, I just think that, like, the fact that Piper Jaffrey would even write that in their investment briefing for the Cybertruck is just like, we've turned the page to, like, a new dawn for Tesla. I mean, there's a whole bunch of unsubstantiated reports that um, their Taiwanese parts suppliers are already shipping parts for the Model Y, so it's probably going to be launched six months earlier than Tesla believed, so probably start shipping in early um, you know, 2020. And then separately, there's more data that shows that the Model 3 is the third most selling car in all of California. All of California, all classes of cars like up and down, the Model 3 is number three in all classes. I'm just saying Tesla's doing pretty well right now. I don't know, Jigger. So your gauge on whether this is successful is whether Elon Musk can be more like P.T. Barnum and just generate hype? Well, whatever. I'm just saying, like, at some point we have to acknowledge that, like, he he actually makes money in the same way that Richard Branson makes money, right? He is in a market where you normally spend $10 billion a year on advertising with the Super Bowl and everything else. And he has said, you know what? I will be able to get $10 billion with the free advertising 
just by making things crazy. And he does, whether he's calling somebody a pedophile in Thailand or whether he's actually like launching this weird ass Pontiac Aztec looking Cybertruck, right? Again, I'm not going to buy it. There might be other people who listen to this podcast who love it. Either way, he got his $10 billion of free press. Will Aremis, the, the tech journalist, wrote a really great piece about how this vehicle is just for Tesla lovers. Like, it's a truck that came straight out of Elon Musk's head. He didn't do any background research. He doesn't care about what people think, what kind, what kind of consumers buy trucks. He just sort of threw out this design. And it's a truck for people who already love Tesla. And if we're going to you know, revolutionize the light-duty truck space, which is continuing to make up a greater share of, of automotive sales, we need something more than just a truck for Tesla lovers. But I don't think he's trying to be the answer to everybody's dreams of trucks. I think he's he puts things out there that he sees have some kind of desirability. And for him, this one seems like something he really wants. And he did the same thing with the Roadster. And look where it got him. Eventually, he got to models that other people could afford. And I, I think that's what he does. He wants to put something out there that's really different, that changes the conversation and gets people talking about it. And I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. I don't think he has to be the answer to the future of our truck. Not only is there nothing wrong with that, it, it is actually, by definition, the solution. Remember, he's a lot more like Branson than he is like Steve Jobs. I get the fact that everyone wants to compare him to Steve Jobs and because Apple is now ubiquitous and all that stuff. But like Branson has never been ubiquitous, right? When you think about Virgin Atlantic or whether you think about like Virgin Mobile, he always has small market share, but a better consumer experience and a more rabid consumer base. And he makes, he's a billionaire based on that. And the same thing's true here. He has a rabid base of supporters. If you have 2.3 million trucks a year sold in the United States, and if he gets 100,000 or 200,000 trucks a year on the road, remember the Ford F-150 is probably going to be electric three years earlier than they were projecting because of Elon, right? Rivian probably got money from investors because people wanted to compete with Elon. So like, like the, again, like I don't care whether I like the Cybertruck, right? Like I make lots of personal decisions that people find distasteful. Like I buy all my clothes at Brooks Brothers. People are like, why do you look like Brooks Brothers? I get it, right? That's not your taste. I like to be lazy. But at the end of the day, like, you know, it's not about me. It's about the people who are going to buy his product, and all the supply chain benefits from that come from that, all of the efficiency of the drivetrain. Like, he is blowing people's minds every day around the minute micro-efficiencies, right? Just over-the-air software updates increased people's range on their vehicles by 15 miles, right? That's crazy. Okay, so three brands in the U.S. control over 90% of the truck market. Do you think with this model, Tesla can break in and start to move electrification in light duty trucks? Well, I do think that they move the needle, even if everybody isn't buying their vehicles, as Jigger said, because they kind of force everybody else to do something. So this morning, GM and LG Chem just announced a close to $2 billion venture to manufacture 
batteries in Lordstown, Ohio for EVs, and it's a union plant. So Tesla's not unionized. And what is so cool is like it is really keeping all of these other companies on their toes. And I think then you're going to get a better outcome from the traditional car manufacturers than you would have had if Tesla weren't there. I, I totally agree. I think Catherine's exactly right. And I, the other thing I would say is that I think it would finally allow the electric utility companies to get off their ass. It's amazing to me how low a percentage of their fleet is electric. And they keep complaining that it's because we don't have any trucks. Well, now they'll have like eight trucks to choose from. And I hope they finally get on the stick and replace all of these fleet vehicles that they have with electric. I think one of the reasons why I had the somewhat negative reaction to this launch is not because I disagree with the idea that you need to push the envelope or come up with something new that gets people talking about trucks. It's it's back to this fundamental belief that I don't think this is a truck that can get to the masses. I think it's for people who already love Tesla and who are already probably going to buy an electric vehicle. And that's a tapped out market, right? I mean, there, you, you it's it's people who can afford to already buy an electric vehicle, a high-end electric vehicle. It's going to get pretty expensive with all the add-ons. And you're not necessarily reaching the class of customers who aren't paying attention to Tesla. I want to reach you know, the farmer in Texas or the construction worker in Minneapolis or whatever. Um, and I don't think that this Cybertruck is going to do that. And, and you know what? He, of course, Musk doesn't have to do that. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. And if he wants to push the envelope with great design, then more power to him. I'm just saying that if you're looking at a market where 70% of uh, vehicle sales are light duty vehicles, you're not going to move the needle if you're just building a car that only your rabid fans are going to love or a truck that only your rabid fans are going to love. So, Stephen, I think you have a point with that. The The pickup truck market in the U.S., um, is over just over 3 million. And you're right that a lot of those are people who need to be hauling things as opposed to people who just like the idea of hauling things. But I think what you're going to see is that with joint ventures like the GMLGM, LG Chem Venture or Ford's F-150 or the Rivian uh, partnership with both Ford and Amazon for a lot of their trucks, you're going to see lots and lots, dozens and dozens of EV models coming out anytime between next year and 2024. And I think that's going to give people a lot more choices and let them see something that looks much more familiar. And if it's like less expensive to operate and is much better performing, I think people are going to start shifting. Yeah, Catherine, that brings us into a broader conversation about the electric truck market and where the Cybertruck fits in. So you said the the total truck market is about 3 million uh, vehicles. We could see about 250,000 electric trucks in production by 2021. It looks like demand might be only around 70,000 trucks. So I guess the question is, will demand pick up? And could something so different like the Cybertruck actually increase uh, truck sales? So I'm wondering, Jigger, what you think about what kind of models are in development. Uh, We've got a model from Rivian, from Lordstown Motors, uh, GM and Ford, you know, pretty much all the major, major auto companies and some startup truck companies are developing electric models. Do you think that this market will expand beyond this like conservative 70,000 number by 2021? 
Well, probably not by 2021, just because I don't think there's going to be that many models available by 2021. It's probably going to be a couple of years after that. But I will make a prediction. I believe that the Cybertruck is going to take on Escalade-like cultural significance and that people will be paying $150,000 for tricked out Cybertrucks. I think people are going to create an entire aftermarket for the Cybertruck. That is how culturally significant this truck will be. And I think all the other standard options, as Catherine talked about, will be coming out in 2021, 2022, 2023. Probably the last one to come out will be Chrysler because they seem to be nowhere. But like, I think you will see um, a whole bunch of models come out. And I think what you will find is, is that you may even have a lot of structural plug-in hybrids so that you know you actually have both the engine and maybe 40 miles of electric range so that people can, you know, get both. I'm still not giving up on Apple, by the way. (laughs) Well, if anything's going to make Apple acquire Tesla, it's this truck, right? (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most solar inverters in the world. Those inverters are the backbone of some of the biggest and most innovative PV projects. And when you're putting such high volumes of power electronics in the field every day, you need people like Jill Dunn to make sure everything goes smoothly. Jill is a project manager at SunGrow. I caught up with her during a moment of downtime in the warehouse. The time just got by me. I didn't realize it was this late already. Busy day already? Oh, it always is. Keeps it interesting, I guess, huh? Jill's job is to make sure everything happens just the way it's supposed to. That means inverters are built to spec, they're shipped on time, and they fire up smoothly. So if, if something needs to happen, they go to you. Correct. What's the consequence if one of those pieces goes wrong? Uh, during commissioning, luckily, I can say that I have not had any uh, central inverters during the commissioning not turn on. So I have not had to um, worry about that, which is a wonderful thing. Nearly two and a half years at SunGrow, and Jill has a completely clean performance record. That means she's in high demand, and with nearly three gigawatts of inverters already booked for this year, her schedule is packed. Oh yeah, I look at my calendar, and my calendar up through Q2 and and onward of next year, and that's pretty much all I can focus on at this time. I don't want to look too much farther out. It may scare me on how much more is on there. It is shocking looking at it, and it is absolutely wonderful looking at it at the same time with our growth. You just need to be very organized and detailed, and you can get through any project. So maybe if analysts want to understand the growth of the industry, they don't have to crunch the numbers. They just need to look at your calendar. (laughs) Absolutely. When you choose SunGrow Inverters, you aren't just choosing best-in-class technology. You're choosing people like Jill, who work around the clock to make sure those inverters are meeting the highest performance standards. There's a lot of steps involved. You know, this is a very intense, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure to get things done on time. The best part of this is being able, at the end of it, to hand off the reports to the customer and, you know, have another successful project done. So, so do customers feel like they can stand by the Jill Dunn seal of approval? I believe so. <laughs> you can get more information on SunGrow's solar and storage inverters at sungrowpower.com. There are a couple major pieces of clean energy legislation on the table right now in Congress. One is somewhat realistic. One is aspirational. Are we going to get another major boost for renewables through the tax code? 
it's uh, the bill, the tax bill itself has got a lot of support from typical industry and green groups, but it also comes at a time when researchers are increasingly saying, hey, this kind of policy is great, but it's not anywhere close to sufficient to drop in greenhouse gas emissions. So while we continue to focus on the things that we can get done in politics, which is funding renewables through the tax code, we still lag in other areas of policy in terms of decarbonization. So let's talk about the bill itself, and then maybe we can broadly contextualize it. To the tax bill first, Catherine, what's in it? Yeah, so there. this is a House bill that was introduced by Mike Thompson from California, and he is on the Very Powerful Ways and Means Committee that is run by Richie Neal of Massachusetts. And this Green Act, as they call it, extends the solar investment tax credit and offshore wind tax credit by five years. It puts geothermal and fuel cells back in. It extends a 60% production tax credit for wind for five years. It includes a standalone energy storage investment tax credit. It adds waste energy recovery to the bill. It lifts the cap on EVs to 600000 instead of 200000 and puts a 10% adder uh in for heavy duty vehicles. It includes some uh, environmental justice programs and also has efficiency credits back in, extending some, re-upping others. Um, So it's really a, a big package. And yet, I would say it's not a crazy package. So it, the original tax bill offered earlier this year in the session had a lot of what I would call poison pills in them for the Senate, like the earned income tax credit, a lot of things that were just never going to happen. This is actually a serious proposal. And so um, Minority Leader Schumer in the Senate has something to work with. So he can take this to his leadership, to Senator Grassley, who's the chair of Senate Finance Committee, the tax writing committee over there, and say, you know, here is where we are. So now let's have something to negotiate with. So is this something that is like normal end of year tax stuff? Or is there something unique about this bill? Well, we're at a point where there are a bunch of credits that have needed needed extending for a while. We've needed to do the storage uh, tax credit separately for a while. Um, Senator Grassley is very keen on getting a biodiesel credit done. And so we're at a point where there is a lot of will, bipartisan will, to get this done. Um, It's not going to be a standalone bill, so it would have to be attached to one of the appropriations funding bills that are going to go at the end of the year. But we are at a point where maybe not everything in this bill gets done all at once, but we can get some of these things have a really good chance of getting done. And then the rest... What we're looking at next year is, of course, an election year, so it's hard to get a lot done until after the election when you have this lame duck session where you may want to clear the decks for the president in 2021, whoever that might be. And so there's an opportunity now before the end of the year, and then there's another opportunity in the lame duck session um, in 2020. Catherine, what is this net zero emission bill that's been moving around the House? Yeah, so this is very different. So this is a messaging bill. And this is really a bill to set the Democratic caucus goals and to get everybody aligned. And what it is, is it's net zero by 2050. It's not 100% renewables by 2050. It's net zero. And everybody is aligned. So Speaker Pelosi is behind this. Um, Frank Pallone, who is the chair of Energy and Commerce Committee, who has is going to be also introducing his own climate bill before the end of the year, or at least like a working draft. And then Kathy Castor, who's the chair of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, is also, while she's not 
she hasn't co-sponsored this bill. She is putting out a report um, in Q1 of 2020 on, you know, what should all the committees be working on going forward on climate? And this bill would really just gets everybody aligned so that all the committees are looking at the same targets that, you know, they can they can tee this up if the presidency changes to Democrats so that, you know, the whoever the incoming president would be would be able to pick this up and take it and say, all right, here's something that we can start working with. So it is a messaging bill, but it's really important that they go ahead and set their goals and say, here's what we want to get to. Okay, so one of the reasons why we are talking about this is because, yes, we have these pieces of legislation out there. It looks like we might actually get some action. But we got some listener questions about it as well. And one listener reached out and said, hey, can you talk about this tax package? And actually, what I want you to talk about is that there are limitations to the way we promote clean energy. And and there's actually like some renewed research from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology this week that came out showing the way that we promote clean energy technologies is grossly inadequate for solving climate change. That despite the rise in renewables, global emissions are still going to go up. U.S. emissions might still creep up. This is not anything that our listeners didn't already know. I think we've sufficiently discussed this, but it's important to consider given that we are once again only able to act on providing tax incentives for clean energy technologies and not doing something even broader to reduce our consumption of fossil fuels. Um, so, Catherine, what are your thoughts on the, the, the importance and limitations of this kind of policy action? Yeah, so we're doing what we can, right, given the political construct in the Senate and people not wanting to take on huge climate positions in that chamber. But that doesn't mean we can't still get some things done. So getting this tax bill done would be something we could do. Appropriations. So energy and water appropriations that funds Department of Energy and then there are other bills, of course, that fund other agencies can have some really important programmatic changes that help direct the agencies and fund programs and projects that are going to be really useful to tackling climate change. But if you really want to get big things done... What we should look to is Chair Castor and her report coming out uh, from the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis that's going to look at everything and say, all right, what are all these different things that we need to do? How do we tackle all sectors of the economy? And what are all the tools that we have at, at our disposal? So one tool is getting rid of all the ta- the hundreds of millions of dollars a year that we give to the fossil fuel industry. Perhaps that's one way. Perhaps another way is to have this National Climate Bank that would be able to fund projects and, and allow state programs to go forward. There may be additional tax resources. There may be like a a renewable portfolio standard for the entire federal sector. There may be lots and lots of things and maybe a lot of things that I did not mention. But we can put all of those into, you know, in those ideas out there as long as we have the will on both sides of the aisle to do that. In Energy and Commerce Committee today, as we tape, they're having a hearing on deep decarbonization to look at what are all these different tools that you can bring to bear. So at least it's in the conversation now. We haven't been able to talk about this for 10 years, and we are. And so we are now, and I think we are coming up with some new ideas and new solutions. And I think that is really important. Yeah, it's always refreshing to hear the conversation, but it's going to still stay just in messaging documents. I mean, there is no indication whatsoever that we can move on any kind of meaningful action aside from just simple tax extenders. And 
that's I mean, that brings us to the problem that we identify each and every time. The political moment just does not allow us to take the action that all these researchers and analysts tell us we need to take. Of course, we need to do it. But the political moment does not allow us to do that. I guess the question is, let's assume you have some movement in Congress and you have a Democratic president, uh, a president who is more willing to accept the fact that we need to dramatically slash funding for fossil fuels and dramatically slash our use of fossil fuels. That's actually quite different from the Obama years. If you'll remember, Obama came in and was the first president to really promote clean energy in the way he did. But he also was still a believer that we needed an all of the above approach and uh, tried to sort of incrementally influence our consumption of oil and gas. Um, And, you know, we saw oil and gas drilling explode in the United States under Obama. And we're now in a position where we really need to reevaluate that in a very serious way and do it extremely quickly. So like in a world where we actually do have movement, will a Democratic president come in of all the field? Will a Democratic president come in and actually make that hard series of choices? Yeah. And that is something we actually have to hold them accountable for. Because remember when Obama came in, we were in the middle of heading into one of the deepest recessions since the Great Depression. So he had a lot of things to deal with uh, in addition to climate and clean energy. And clean energy was one way he tried to help us recover. But we're in a very different place right now. And you are absolutely right. We have to hold whoever it is, whoever our elected officials are, on either side of the aisle, we have to say to them, this is a priority, because otherwise they won't make it a priority. Right. But I just think that we've got to make sure that we're clear about the fact pattern and why what is happening is happening, right? Remember, Obama's energy policy was the same as George W. Bush's energy policy, right? George W. Bush introduced the 30% tax credit. He actually like championed wind energy in Texas. So he was also all of the above. He like passed an eight-year extension of the ITC before he left office in 2008 in the TARP bill. And so Obama just carried that forward. And the reason he did that is because making fuel more expensive to voters sucks in terms of re-election. It always sucks. And I know that the carbon tax people are like, oh, but if we just increase the carbon tax and we dividend money back to people, they're going to understand. Sure, they're going to understand. But when they go to the pump and their gasoline is 30 cents more expensive, and ExxonMobil, you know damn well, is going to put a freaking sign on the pump that says your gasoline is 30 cents more expensive because of the carbon tax. And you will disassociate that from the $1,000 check you get at the end of the year from the government. And so it is not surprising that politicians, particularly blue dog ones like Steny Hoyer, for instance, who's like the number two in the House, it looks at this stuff and says, why the hell would we ever like shoot ourselves in the head with a carbon tax? Like, why would we do that to ourselves? Yeah, well, this is why the the activists who are focusing on this issue are gaining such traction, because for those of us who've been following this in the policy environment. For those like Catherine, who've just been deep in it for so long, we understand the limitations of what you can get done in policy. And, you know, we're at a point now where you look at you you can say, okay, well, this is what we can get done. There's compromise, we can move the ball forward. It's fairly bipartisan when we focus on tax issues. There's really not that much resistance uh, across administrations. But we're at a point now where we need to upend the whole system. And the political environment does not allow us to even start to think about that. And so now we have all these other forces playing a role in shaping the political conversation. And that's why activists are now, and that's why activists have such 
a major voice in this conversation at the moment. Right, but like, but I'll, um, I'll give you another way of doing it, right? So if you were to message this instead around healthcare costs, right? The National Academy of Sciences has said multiple times that the U.S. pays $120 billion a year in actual healthcare costs because of fossil fuel burning. If you were to say, we're going to tax fossil fuels to pay for those healthcare costs, you might actually get that passed, right? Because it's a direct correlation. But I think that what the activists keep pushing for is, we would like to tax this as much as we can within political constraints to get people to use less of it. And that's just never, ever, ever going to pass. Not in the United States of America. Yeah, I think a much better strategy is to stop the tax breaks that the fossil fuel industry is getting now. I don't think adding another tax layer to it is necessarily going to work. And you're going to get a ton of revenue from you know, those those stopping those breaks that they currently get. But we are, as, G- as Stephen says, we're, we're at a tipping point where we can't just keep doing things incrementally. And I've been having to live incrementally for a really long time in my policy push. And yet I think we are at a point where something is going to shift. And I'm hoping, given public opinion and that pressure is being put on our elected officials that the tide will change. We'll be able to do something big. I'm forever hopeful. I just think that, so, you know, Rod Richardson and I wrote a piece for Reason magazine this week on pushing clean tax cuts instead of a carbon tax, which is basically being able to provide municipal bond financing for clean energy. So you get 3% interest money instead of 7% interest money. But I think you know, my sense is a lot of this is never going to get better at the federal government level, and we need to stop trying. In the same way that it's not going to get better at the EU level, by the way, the EU is just as bad as the US federal government. And so most of the innovation happens at the state level. We've had a great year this year, right? Four new states passed 100% clean electricity policy. I think you see an amazing amount of movement in transmission right now with the use of rail Uh, right-of-ways to be able to unlock transmission. We've got a tremendous movement in electric vehicles, and you might actually see a ban in internal combustion engines in California in the not-too-distant future. And so I think that when you think about, you know, where hope comes from, you know, California is like the fifth largest economy in the world. And I think we all continue to be like, well, unless we can get all 50 states, including a rural state like Wyoming and a very populous, tech-savvy, dense state like California to agree on one set of policies, then we're a failure. And that's just not the way the United States works. And anyone who says otherwise hasn't studied the United States of America. So in the meantime, we're stuck with these tax extenders Catherine, your what's your hope meter like for for getting this across the finish line? Yeah, it's pretty high. Um, and I'm also really excited that they may be able to do the energy and water appropriations for DOE. There's just a lot of really good stuff in there for um, a lot of innovators and smart programs, smart modeling and analysis tools. I think it's just as important to fund the federal government. And it looks like they're close to that. Now, there's still we have to have something passed by December 20th. And whether that is, you know, like a conglomeration of a bunch of you know, individual agency bills, and then maybe an omnibus, you know, in an omnibus format that would have a continuing resolution for all the others. I don't know what that's going to look like. And of course, the president has been trying to make sure he has funding for a wall in there that is very difficult to get done. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that if we can get 
agreement on some of these appropriations bills that then the tax piece will be easily attached to it. And I think that that's why I'm very hopeful on this. We wrap the show with a simple yet thought-provoking question from a listener. Where would we invest a million dollars to make the most impact on climate change? Here's the full question from listener Eric Imley. I'm a financial advisor, and yesterday I got an interesting question from a client. If she wanted to put a million dollars into fighting climate change, what should she do? I wasn't sure where to get the answer, so I thought you might take it up on the podcast. I think she's willing to buy 10 people Teslas, donate it to charity, private equity, and everything in between. She just wants the biggest bang for her buck. So let's let's uh, answer the question. Before we do answer that, please remember we are not financial advisors. <laughs> this is not meant to be financial advice. It's a thought exercise. I can tell you what I'd do. I'd buy 33 Tesla Cybertrucks. <laughs> Sure you would. <laughs> Maybe 25 if I trick them all out. Yeah, you'd be able to buy uh, 10,000 deposits for Cybertruck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So, Jigger, where would you put the money? Well, so in general, um, what I'm mostly interested in is figuring out how to get more clean energy in my community. So what I've been doing over the past 12 years is uh, investing in like 15, 20, 50, you know, kilowatt type solar systems in my community, right? There's always a church or a school or a low income housing project or whatnot that wants to do solar, is willing to sign a PPA, can't figure out a way to get it financed. Um, And so that's what I've been doing for years. Um, And it's built up a pretty interesting sort of pension for me, right? Because they're going to pay for the next 20 years and it's at 20% less than they're currently paying. And, um, so, I mean, that's generally what I do, um, and it brings me great joy just because I think there's a lot of projects out there where people work hard to get consumers to say yes to something that's pretty hard and complicated to say yes to, and then they have a hard time finding um, financing. There's a great company called SunWealth in um, Boston, I think, who's been trying to do this more systematically for investors. Um, but yeah, no, that's what I do. Yeah, so so that's a that's a really good point about Sun Wealth. You're steeped in this stuff. I mean, you were you were there. You helped create the first power purchase agreements. You were like one of the financial pioneers of this. So you know you understand where to start. What about someone like this theoretical client who probably doesn't know how to get in the space in the same way? Would they go to a company like Sun Wealth? Would they do it on their own? How would you get started? Well, you obviously. I think would want to do it within your comfort zone, right? And so if you don't feel comfortable with the paperwork and the complexity, then you do it through people like SunWealth. If you're an active real estate investor or, you know, somebody who does these kinds of things in other parts of your business, then like you might feel totally comfortable doing it directly. But I think that whether it's solar or energy efficiency or, you know, for instance, there's a group that I just got contacted by that is converting their... A taxi fleet of four taxis into Tesla Model 3s. And their local bank wouldn't provide them financing to do that, right? So I'm considering looking at that. And so there are things like that that, you know, somebody with a million dollars could do in their local community. And you actually would know the person that's do- that's doing it. You could meet up with the person so you could size them up to make sure they're not, you know, cheating you out of your money. Um But like these transactions are just so small, but they're so important, right? Because like that is how this becomes commonplace in our society is by everyone having access to it. 
Catherine, where would you put the money? Yeah, so I don't think a million dollars is enough to run for president, which seems to be what everybody else in the world <laughs> wants to do. But so you take like, that one ad campaign. <laughs> it's, yeah, on a on a you know not even a major channel. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. So you know my impact brain of me is kind of where Jigger is, where I would probably look at a state. Um, state races that, you know, where you could really tip it on climate if you made some investment in some of the candidates or a grassroots mission, you know, um, a grassroots campaign on a specific issue topic in a state. I think this could get you very far with something like that because it's not as expensive. So I think I would look for something like that. But if I were really trying to just make money with a million dollars, I like I reached out to my son who does uh, have is invested in this ETF and exchange traded fund where he says, you know, it's very liquid. It You get high dividends. There's lower volatility and risk depending on what the president does in any given day and he knows that the funding is going to a portfolio of clean energy companies and there are a whole bunch of ETFs out there that do clean energy investment so if I wanted to just try to make money that might be where it is I mean I also I work with a ton of startups and as Jigger does too and you know I would love to to fund some of them, but a million dollars just doesn't go very far. The burn rate in these companies is so high. It's better to try to leverage uh, the big guys to do some of that. But uh, there's so many good technologies out there that I would love to support. I think the average public service commissioner race is less than three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. And so you if could you really could make a difference. Flip a public service commissioner in Alabama or Mississippi. Wow, that'd be big. So then. Hand over that million dollars, get Catherine to be your campaign chair, <laughs> and <laughs> you can flip some races. Uh, How about okay, you, well, Stephen? Uh, you know, point well received. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Point well received on a million dollars not being a ton of money. But still, I think if I had a million dollars to invest, I would be looking at some kind of angel investment. Um, strategy. I would go to places like Greentown Labs, Powerhouse, Urban Acre, the Clean Energy Trust, and start digging through their list of portfolio companies. And I would put a focus on, A, places that are interesting to me, whatever your area of passion is. Um, but I would focus on companies that are like not too high tech, that require a lot of capital, um, or a lot of scientific breakthroughs. I would focus on companies that are looking at resource efficiency or sensors or drones or data plays, robotics, all these enabling technologies that I think can help us deploy clean energy faster and could potentially offer a pretty strong return if, you know, one or a couple of these companies really takes off. Um, and so, so you know, angel investment would be one strategy of, of mine. The other is similar to Catherine's, I would probably focus on policy, but I might focus on the policy influence of nonprofits or like environmental groups. So I have no idea what the politics of this client are, but I think it's very clear that whatever your politics are, this administration is dismantling some of the most important and fundamental environmental regulations of their time. And they are taking the environmental cop off the beat. And one of our only lines of defense right now are environmental groups with a lot of legal resources that are taking going to take the administration to court. And so I know if I had a million dollars, I might consider donating it to one of the major environmental groups that is leading the legal charge or 
to something like the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, which is truly having an impact in both shutting down coal plants and helping local communities come up with a portfolio of solutions, clean energy solutions, to fill in the gap when those coal plants are shut down. So those are the two ends of the spectrum that I might focus on. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. And it's funny because I'm always, people think I'm a homer for energy storage, which I kind of am. But there's so many interesting other spaces out there like water technology and ag tech and forestry that we really, really need some good solutions on. And uh, I think you could find something pretty cool to do some uh, angel investing in, Stephen. Well, if uh, you want to send that client's check this way, let us know. And maybe over the next year, the energy gang can invest that money and, and, and see whose strategy is best. Yeah. And if you want someone to work on an issue campaign, we do that all the time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Free electrons now to close out the show. Catherine, what's yours? Yeah. So Zeke Housefather. I hope that's how you say his name, is a climate scientist at Berkeley. And they just released a study, uh, a geophysical research letter called Evaluating the Performance of Past Climate Model Projections. And what they did was they looked at the climate modeling from 1970 to 2007 and looked at how those models were predicting climate change and then how what it really showed like how close was it to reality and there's sort of two things that this relies on one is accurate modeling of the climate physics the physics of climate and the other is like needing to have accurate assumptions on what the future co2 emissions are going to be or any other factors and the findings are that like they're really accurate <laughs> that that these climate models have been really good predictors and their whole goal is to kind of to help resolve some of the confusion that has been created sometimes disingenuously over the accuracy of climate modeling but uh it looks like a really good study for us to use and for people like Greta Thunberg to use who I says look at the science that our modeling is pretty good <laughs> pretty good it's really good i mean this like brings tears to my eyes you know if you look at if you follow what is happening with observations in climate science, it's pretty clear that we have matched or exceeded previous predictions. But when you see it like mapped out in such a scientific way to say, like, look, the models have been right, and you compare that to what scientists are now saying about what their models are telling them, it is so terrifying. And it's just heartbreaking, too. I mean, it's, it, it's just really heartbreaking. I agree, but I'm always glad when I see that the scientists are right. Yeah, but that, that's a good and important one, Catherine. Jigger, what's yours? So in the spirit of Thanksgiving and, you know, the run up to the holiday, um, I wanted to, you know, highlight an article by Jacinta Bowler in uh, Eureka Street in Australia around green consumerism being part of the problem. And, you know, I think when you when you think about, you know, organic cotton and the clothing retailer Zara just saying they're going to use 100% of its fabrics will be sustainable by 2025 and Apple is going to stop mining. I just think one of the things that I've come to the recognition of and, and I try to practice pretty heavily is that um, we just have to start buying less stuff, you know, with all of these like sort of clothing boxes and lots of other things. People are buying 60% more clothing today than they did 15 years ago. And so we are accelerating as consumers and we're throwing more stuff away than we ever have. And I do think, you know, if folks want to do something this holiday season, 
around climate change as an individual, you'll buy less stuff. I like books myself. I love giving yes. people books because you can hang on to it. You can read it over and over again, or you can donate it to the library when you're done. I totally agree. I mean, frankly, have you seen that new library app, Libby? So you now can, um, if you have a local library card, you can now download almost every ebook in the country through all the local libraries. Well, my free electron comes from Washington State. So Jason Dane over at uh, Green Tech Media wrote this story about how Washington State ferries, which is actually the second largest ferry system in the world. I had no idea how extensive it, it is, but it makes sense now that I look at the geography of Washington State. Uh, it is switching its fleet entirely from diesel to batteries. And uh, that that is going to slash annual use of 20 million gallons of diesel. Uh, they, they ferry actually 25 million people a year. That is the annual fuel consumption of a midsize airline, according to a, a spokesperson for the Washington State Ferries. I thought that was an extraordinary story. A, I didn't understand how extensive the Washington State Ferry system was. And B, if they can do it, then uh, it seems like batteries are, are ready to go for lots of short haul shipping. So we should definitely have a longer story on this. I know a lot about this, and this is one of the least ambitious announcements I've ever seen. <laughs> um, it, Why? Why? Oh, well, tease us then. It basically, like, there is a way to, to convert all of the ferries in Washington State in the next three years, and they just can't get out of their own way. There's a union issue. You have to use a local shipyard. You have to do this. You have to do that. And... They just can't get out of their own way. So they're like, well, we use the VW money to overpay for two conversions and a charging station. It's just the most infuriating thing I've seen. Like, I love Washington State. I do. And I love Jay Inslee, as you know. But their ability to deploy in Washington State has been horrendous. Plot twist. Okay. Well noted. And perhaps we'll pick this up uh, in a future episode. I had no idea. The show is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. It's produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Our theme music is from Chad Crouch. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to everyone who's done that already. Send a link to your friends and family this holiday season. And thanks a lot for being with us. We love having you here with us every week for the gang, and we will catch you soon. 